Okay, so we're looking at Deuteronomy chapter 18. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the year that what we're going to be doing for a little while at least is we're going to be looking through um, the the lectionary. We're going to be using the lectionary to sort of guide us and help us sort of decide what it is we're going to be talking about every week. And so what we're going to be talking about today begins with Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we'll just get into it. And th this is one of those things like there's some words that are going to pop out that sound kind of um, antiquated and may maybe a little bit just like, what what are we supposed to do with these words? And we're going to try our best to to deal with those as, as we come across them. So we'll that, that'll make more sense as we go. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning in verse 14, it says, um, sorry, it says, the nations you will dispossess will uh, li listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. Which, all, by the way, all, already where it says the nations you will dispossess, this is wartime language. And this is basically like in, in this time and in this place in the ancient Near East, there was a lot of conquest and overpowering and people taking each other's land. And this group of people here, they're no exception to that. They're also living in the same sort of world. And so when you come across this, when it says the, the nations you will dispossess, and if it bothers you, I think it's okay that that bothers you. It, it, I think it's okay to to come across passages like that and think like, whoa, 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 what do you mean the nations you dispossess? Like the the people that you are going to like remove from their homes forcibly? Like, yeah, that's that's difficult to deal with, and that that probably deserves its own set of sermons and its own um, unpacking, as it were. But anyway, so but that that's actually not what we're getting at today. But I didn't want to just have read that and pretend like that didn't just say what it said. You know, so the, the whole thing about the nations you will dispossess, it, it says, listen to those who, the, the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But, so now it's, it's drawing a contrast here. So it says, but as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. So it's drawing a contrast. So there are certain groups of people who practice what are what's often referred to as sorcery and divination. And then it says here, but you, the people that this particular God, the, the God of the Bible is talking to, you aren't supposed to be doing those things. And then in verse 15, it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from among you. When it says prophet like me, the, the assumption here is that this is um, a figure named Moses who's speaking. And so he's saying there will be someone who is like me, who you will refer to as a prophet. And then it says, uh, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. So a lot going on here, but the main thing that we're looking at in, in this particular conversation is the concept of a prophet. So we start off where it says there, there are groups of people, and this group, these groups of people practice things like divination and sorcery, but you're not going to do that because you will have a prophet. And so there's some sort of distinct... Um, distinction between what a prophet does and what these other groups in particular do. So the question we have to begin asking ourselves right now is what do we mean when we talk about prophets? And I think a lot of times when we hear the word prophet, we tend to think of things like sorcery and divination. In other words, we tend to, we tend to think of things like a person who sees into the future and tells like riddles. And those riddles are supposed to tell you like what, what's going to happen in the future. And all you have to do is like unspool the, the riddle. 
And, and that's what a prophet does. And so a prophet says like really cryptic stuff. And if you're like really honed in on like the message that the prophet is sending, then you will know the future. Like the prophet is supposed to be somebody who like looks off into the distance and is able to tell you with like remarkable accuracy and clarity what the future holds, except it's not that accurate or, or it's not that clear because again, a lot of times it's like, well, this word could mean this or it could mean this. And if you really listen to the prophet and so it becomes sort of, again, like, like sort of, um, like a puzzle you have to, uh, to solve or, or something like that. And so, but the thing is the role of a prophet, we, I, I just realized like I had no introduction here and we should jump right in. Now, now we're just like, you've been logged in for like five minutes and we're just talking about here's what prophets are. So anyway, the role of a prophet in the, the original intention of a prophet was not to like gaze into the future and to tell you what the future is going to be. I realize, again, I realize that a lot of times that is what the assumption is about a prophet. But that's why earlier it, it condemns things like sorcery and divination because that's what those practices do. This is supposed to be some something different. The writer is drawing a, a distinction between what those things do, which is tell the future, and what prophecy is meant to do because prophecy is not meant specifically to tell the future. So if it's not meant to tell the future, what is it meant to do? The function of a prophet is to name patterns that are already in place and essentially to say, this here is not good. This system, this pattern, this way of existing, this, this, this mode of societal posturing, like these things are not good. And what a prophet does is, is meant to name those things to say, okay, if this pattern is followed, to its logical conclusion, this is what that will eventually look like. As, as, as the current systems and patterns are in place, as they currently exist, are, these things are destructive. They are functioning at a, like you ca they cannot sustain themselves forever. And a prophet is someone who speaks these kinds of things to society. A prophet is somebody who is intended to speak truth to power or to call out broken systems, or to or call out systems of injustice, and help people imagine a better path. And we mentioned a few weeks ago, like generally speaking, most people don't like the prophets. Quite often, people try and kill the prophets because if you are somebody who is in power, and somebody comes along and says how you got your power is has hurt people, and the logical conclusion of you continuing to have this power is more pain and destruction, and will end up end up like unraveling society as we know it. If you're the person with the power, you're thinking, I'd really prefer it if those prophets weren't around. So a lot of times a prophet is the least popular guy in the room because the prophet is the guy who's telling everybody the thing that they most don't want to hear. So a prophet possesses the wisdom essentially to say, we, people, we could be better. We were created to be, be better, so let's together pursue a better path. That is what a prophet is supposed to do. And Moses in, uh, or presumably Moses in Deuteronomy 18 says, after I am gone, at some point down the line, someone else will step into this role as prophet. He's letting people know, like, look, this is going to be something that continues to occur. There will be people who, who emerge from our own society who call us out and who challenges and who challenge us to be better than we are. And it's going to be your job. He's speaking to the people. He's, he's saying it's going to be your job to listen to those people and not try to kill them or not try to silence them in some sort of way. So that's kind of where we started. So he's, he's 
when, when he says a prophet like me will emerge, he's saying there will be people who will call you out for the patterns and the destructive tendencies. There will be people who will speak truth to power, who are essentially speaking for God. And your job is to hear those people and to understand that what they're saying, they're not trying to say these things to upset you. They're trying to say these, they're saying these things because they believe that you can be better. So then in Deuteronomy, so then we'll, we'll just continue on. And then in verse 17, it says, the Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among your fellow, their fellow Israelites, and I will put my and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I commanded him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. In other words, like this is God speaking, and God is saying, when when pro- when the prophet shows up, when prophets show up and speak truth to power, they are speaking on my behalf. That there is a that they are representing the divine in their in what they have to say. And then in verse 20 it says, "But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death." Which seems a bit drastic. Like the the if somebody comes along and presumes to speak for God, and it turns out that this person is not speaking for God, then according to Deuteronomy, this person is to be put to death. So apparently this is something that they take very, very seriously. Again, it seems a little bit dramatic. It seems like maybe, you know, you could just like put the person in a timeout or take away his microphone or whatever it is that you need to do before like the ultimate punishment here. And this, and again, this is one of those things like that feels very extreme, but here's the thing. In this time, in the ancient Near East, if you were somebody who could gain a following and that and you could gain a following by saying that you claim to speak for God. And in gaining that following, you could get your followers to do all sorts of like destructive, harmful things. Then there's not a lot of ways to to like quiet those voices once they get started. And again, I realize this is very extreme and thankfully like we've I think gone beyond this. I, I think I think humanity as a whole, I think we found better ways to um to, to deal with these to- types of destructive forces, but this is what they were working with at the time. And so, um, again, the question becomes like, why is this such a big deal? So jump over to Deuteronomy chapter five for a second. So in order to understand like why this is such a big deal and, and the question of like, does this person speak for God or does this person not speak for God? How in, the, how in our society, how is this person representing God? Um, in, or, in order to, to sort of fully understand that, we have to go back to the Ten Commandments, which I know is what everybody was assuming I was going to say. So in the Ten Commandments, you, we have, if, if, you, if you grew up in a, uh, in, in a culture where the Ten Commandments were sort of like elevated and you had like this, this notion of like, well, these are the most important ones, right? Like we're going to, you know, put these on the walls at our Sunday school classrooms or whatever. Um, and we want kids to like memorize these things. What exactly are we saying here? And so in, in, in fact, in our very first year as a church, I did a whole series just on the Ten Commandments. So what one of the Ten Commandments, the third of the Ten Commandments, says this in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, or the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, if you were like me, you probably came up in a culture that taught that this this concept of misusing the name of the Lord your God was basically like saying curse words, right? Like if you if you use the word God in a in a sentence that is like if you say it because like you hit your finger with a hammer 
or like you're stuck in traffic or, or whatever and then you say something and that, that word you said is the, like the, a word that represents God, then you have violated one of the Ten Commandments. That's the, for, for a lot of us, that's how we were sort of taught. In fact, maybe you grew up in a house where you weren't even allowed to use the word gosh because you might accidentally like put a D instead of an SH. That was a rule we had in my house. Um, I think my dad might be watching, so we probably remember this rule, right? Because we all, we, we had this like deep fear of like, what if we violate the third commandment? Like, oh my gosh, I just did it. I just did it. I didn't even do it on purpose. I did it. So what if, what if we accidentally say the word God in a way that doesn't, that is in, in any sort of way like irreverent or profane? But the thing is, that is, in, that is not at all what this passage is trying to get at. This passage is in no way interested in profanity. Um, here's, here's actually what's going on. And I, to tell you the truth, it's, it's much more challenging and much more profound than that. So in the third commandment, um, this word, first of all, we have, when it talks about the name of God, one of, the, one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, well, then what is God's name? If, you, if, if one of the major commandments is don't misuse the name of God, then it's probably a good idea to know what, what exactly do we mean when we talk about God's name? Because if you don't know what you're talking about, if we don't know what we mean by that, then we might accidentally misuse it and not know it. So in the ancient Near East, the concept of a name, and the, and, uh, sorry, there's a stool in my way. There was, there was an eight-year-old here. And this was her stage a second ago. So the word name here, in the Hebrew, ancient Near Eastern sense, the concept of a name wasn't just like a thing that they called you. It wasn't just like you had you had a first one and a middle one and a last one, and those three things were all made up. You're like your big name or whatever. The, the concept of a name in the ancient Near East was not the thing that people called you. The concept of a name was who are you? It was your your essence, your like the truest nature of yourself. In fact, there there was a notion of like your true name. And that was a way of basically saying like, this is like, if you peel back all the layers and all the pretense and all the things that people see on the outside, and if you get to like the core of who you are, like that's where you find your true name. And so the name of God isn't just like, well, this is the thing that we call God. The name of God is, this is who God is. This is the essence of God. This is the story that God is telling. So when we talk about the name of God, we're not talking about a word, we're talking about an idea, we're talking about a story, we're talking about something much, much larger, and a, or the representation of something much, much larger. So the concept of a name is much, much bigger than what do we call this person or this idea or this entity. It's, it is, is an essence of a thing. So then it talks about do not misuse the name of God. So this word misuse, In Hebrew, is the word lashav. So lashav does not mean like to say profanely. The concept of lashav is not like don't don't you use this word as a curse word. The word lashav literally means it, the the best translation we have for this is do not use this name for unreality. In other words. There is a way that the world works. There, there, there is a mode of being that is what we call God. That, that God has a story that God is telling. And that any time we participate in that story, we are participating in ultimate reality. 
However, if we claim to be participating in that story, but are actually rewriting that story and telling our own version of a story that actually runs counter to this story, we are using the name of God for unreality. This is, okay, I realize this is really weird, heady concept, uh, like conceptual ideas here. Um, but again, it's not about curse words. It's about the name of God, the reputation of God. And this is about taking the name of God, the idea of God, the reputation of God, which the people were said to be carriers of, by the way. In the book of Exodus, there's a whole thing about how the people are carriers of God's name or God's essence. And it use, and, and so it, the idea here is about taking this name, this essence of God, and using it for unreality, using it to bring something like chaos or pain rather than goodness and blessing. If there's anything that we've noticed, if there's anything that we've learned in the past couple thousand years, it's that people can take the Bible, people can take the scriptures, people can take the name of Jesus, and they can use it to do pretty much anything they want to with it, and they can tack the name of Jesus onto it and make it seem like this, this is of God. As long as, as long as we have the right name associated with it, then it's of God, right? Because it doesn't really matter what the message is, just so long as you're using this correct name. But the problem is when we use the ideas, when we use the essence of God to bring darkness and pain and misery into the world, when we use it to harm other people, we are using it for lasha. We are using the name of God for unreality. Um, I was thinking about, I mean, I, I, we come up with all kinds of examples of this. I often think about people who like, um, if, if back when, back when we used to go to downtown Fort Worth, you know, and walk around, um, if you went on a Friday or a Saturday night, you might encounter people who had like pamphlets and they would like, um, get in front of you and they would stand in front of you and they would like shove your pamphlet in, into, or their pamphlet into your hand and tell you that if you don't read their pamphlet and do the things that they want you to do or say the things that they want you to say, then you are going to like die and burn forever or that God hates you or that there is some sort of um, like dark sort of ominous presence to it. In fact, there was one time when um, our, our youngest or our oldest son was a baby and we were pushing our, uh, him, him around in a, um, in a, what's the word, stroller. Why can't I think of words today? We were pushing him in a stroller. We were uh, walking through downtown Fort Worth. We were walking back to our car because um, the night crowd was coming, you know, and we, we wanted to get out of there with our baby before, um, before the traffic got too bad. And so we're trying our best to get back to our car. And this person with a pamphlet steps in front of us and says, you need to hear this. And like, have you, have you heard this message? And basically, like, it's got all, this person's wearing a t-shirt with like Bible verses and their church's name on it. And... And we're just trying to get through. And we just say, like, you know, no thank you, no thank you. And this person says a thing you never want to say to any person ever, just especially to a mother, um, says, if you love your baby, you will stop and listen to me. At which point, um, Caroline mama bared herself up. And thankfully, just by random happenstance, there was a police officer nearby who knew us and who, like, stopped this guy and said, hey, leave these people alone. Otherwise, and he didn't save us from the person. He saved that person from my wife. Um, because it was about to get ugly. Because when you, first of all, using Bible verses to 
threaten or intimidate people, never a great idea. But to in, to to say to a, a mother, if you love your baby, then you will listen to what I have to say, that is, that is a form of provocation that I think people uh, should probably avoid always and ever. Anyway, what's this person doing? This person is out there intimidating, harassing, People, no one is listening. No one cares what this person has to say. And if they did, they would hear lots and lots of toxic, harmful language. What is this person doing? This person is taking the name of Jesus, the idea of Jesus, and using it for Lashab. Is taking it and, and bringing some sort of dark, painful unreality into the world. Or um, I was thinking about how right now there is... Uh, the, the the term Christian celebrity bothers me a lot for any number of reasons. But there's a there's a, a guy who is a Christian celebrity, and the thing he's become very famous for. I mean, in fact, I didn't even know who this guy was until this year, because this guy has become most famous for going around the country and hosting events, maskless, crowded events during the pandemic, because his whole thing has been we're saving people from fear, and so he'll host these massive events where people will gather together and generally, you know, I think it's safe to assume, spread this virus to each other. And his whole thing has been, you know, faith over fear and we're not going to, and, and whatever. And but the thing is, what we've seen is because of events like this, lots and lots of people have gotten sick and lots and lots of people have died because of people like this guy. But this guy is a Christian celebrity who used to make his money by going around and having like big concerts, but big concerts aren't ha happening anymore. And so what this guy decided was like, oh, I know a way to continue making money off the people who follow me is to say that if you don't come to my events, then you are, um, then you are succumbing to some sort of fear. Then, then, then you are, um, then you don't have enough faith. And so what this guy is going to do is he's going to take the name of Jesus and he's going to use it to make money off of people who want to believe that their faith can protect them from a virus. You know what I'm saying? So what is this person doing? This person is using the name of Jesus for unreality. Or, for example, let's say you have, um, you have someone who's doing lots and lots of harmful things um, from, from a public policy perspective. And then when challenged, like, why, why are you doing these things? Why, why are you harming people? With your, um, with your power. If the person then looks at that person and says, well, the book of Romans says that you should bow to my authority. What is that? That is, oh, that, that's somebody taking the, the word, taking the ideas associated with Jesus and using them for lashav, for unreality. We've, we see this all the time. People taking the name and the words of Jesus and using them to bring lots of pain and misery and destruction. So the instruction given, that is given in Deuteronomy 18 about prophets is part of the same series of ideas. The name or the reputation of God is a sacred thing. And anyone who uses it to harm other people or to abuse their own power is committing grave sins, not just against God, but against humanity. So that's what we're talking about. That's why they take this so seriously. So in Deuteronomy, so let's go back to Deuteronomy 18. So in uh, Deuteronomy 18, verse 21, it says, you may say to yourselves, how can we know 
when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Which is a great question. So if you're saying some messages will be of God and then there are other messages that won't be, how are we supposed to know the difference? And then in verse 22, it says, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message that, uh, that the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. So the idea here, again, is this isn't about telling the future. It's about saying, does what this prophet say, does this connect itself? Does this track with reality as we know it? So another way to say is, look at the fruit. When, if, if what this person comes along and says, if we look at the, if, if we look at the natural progression of those ideas, and we look at the, if we look at sort of the, like the logical conclusion of those ideas, does this pattern bear out in reality? Does the fruit of this look like something that would be something that God would endorse that, or that, that would be of Jesus in some sort of way? So take a look at the book of Galatians chapter five. In Galatians five, we, we have this very famous passage that's often referred to as the fruits of the Spirit. So this is basically, this writer Paul, this is his way of saying, okay, there are these, there are sort of like these earmarks. There are these ways of knowing, okay, is this something that is, that is of God, that, that, is, tr- that is represent- representative of the true name of God? Or is it of Lashav? Is it, uh, is it something that is, that is ultimately connected with unreality? So Paul says, okay, here are some ways that you can sort of tell, is this part of the larger story that God is telling? So in Galatians 5, verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, when we participate in life, we are planting seeds. And the fruit of those seeds are can be good fruit or they can be bad fruit. And he says, here's the fruit you want to be looking for. Here, here are the results that you're looking for. And he talks about things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control. If someone tells us, this is what the story of God is all about. And it seems, and what they're describing seems to be completely lacking in all of these criteria that Paul is, is using. It is possible that we are encountering what would often have been at thousands of years ago referred to as a false prophet. So then, in, in fact, take a look at the book of John, uh, chapter one, because I think what we learn about Jesus in the book of John is even more kind of eye-opening here. So this passage can seem a little bit cryptic, but we're gonna look at it anyway. So in John chapter one, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, meaning Jesus, was with God in the beginning through, or the word, uh, was with, with, I'm sorry, was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, seems a little bit cryptic, and it talks about God's word, and it's referring to Jesus here as like the human manifestation of God's word. What's another way of describing God's words? Maybe prophecy? So according to John, the human embodiment of a prophet that Moses was talking about is Jesus. In fact, will, John will continue to return to this idea over and over again. Look at John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 40, um, 
Or no, not 40. Uh, John chapter 6, verse 14. It says, um, it says, after the people saw the signs that Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is a direct reference to the thing that Moses is talking about in Deuteronomy 18. They see what Jesus is doing and they say, surely this person is the representation of the story that God is telling. Or then if you jump over one more chapter to John chapter 7, verse, this one, it's verse 40. It says, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. So over and over and over again, throughout the book of John, who is deeply aware of all the stuff that we find in the book of Deuteronomy, we have Jesus being referred to as the capital P prophet. So What's going on here is they're connecting the Jesus story with what Moses is talking about in chapter 18 and saying, oh, okay, so, so this, this person is now the physical representation of, what it, of the story that God is telling in the world. And by the way, jump over to John chapter 13. In John 13, when Jesus gives his followers a new teaching to carry into the world, what does he tell them? In uh, John 13, verse 34... It says, a new, this is Jesus speaking. It says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So again, this goes back to what kind of fruit does this bear? What, what kind of results does this pr um, produce? So the point of the prophets was never to gaze into the future. It was to look at what is happening right now and to say there are some things that are not great. Here's what we need to do in order to be better participants in the story that God is telling. And Jesus, as a living embodiment of prophecy, as the word made flesh, says the key is love. That's the bullseye. That's, that, that is the center of the whole thing. It's love one another. If, if the fruit does not produce, it, if the fruit is not love, if this produces something other than love, then we're using it for lashab. We're using it for unreality. If we're not participating in a story that is ultimately rooted in love and grace and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, then we're not participating in the same story that Jesus is telling. So then if we'll go back to Galatians chapter 5, this will be the last passage. If we go back to Galatians chapter 5, a little bit earlier than, than the Fruits of the Spirit passage, uh, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. If you hear religious leaders or any leaders advocating for anything less than loving your neighbor as yourself, that person is not inviting you to participate in the story that God is telling. If you hear religious leaders advocate, advocating for things like violence, or if you hear religious leaders use language that marginalizes certain groups of people, if you hear religious leaders speaking and you think if there's any part of your brain that thinks like, that seems a little bit um, too similar to things like white supremacy or... Um, any, any sort of like bias or prejudice that would marginalize or like put people at different levels, then all of a sudden what you're dealing with, that's not the story that God is telling. If you hear any sort of religious leader doing anything that does not ultimately result in love and peace and grace, then that person is using the name of Jesus for 
Lashav. And and by the way, I feel like I should say this doesn't mean that there aren't like consequences for people's actions. Um, it, like when we talk about love, I think a lot of times we 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 make a lot of assumptions, and it doesn't mean that we excuse or ignore things like cruelty or apathy towards the suffering of others. It means that anytime we encounter people, our job is to hold the humanity of our neighbors in our hearts rather than rather than the things that we most dislike about them. And sometimes we have to love people from a distance because they're not safe. Sometimes we have to love people with a lot of boundaries in place because that's how we also love ourselves, which is something that we're called to do. The point is never to lose sight of the humanity of one another. So when Jesus talks about love your neighbor as yourself, when we talk about the bullseye here is love, we, we have to understand that part the, one of the people that we're called to love, one of the pe- people that you're called to love is yourself. And that includes things like healthy boundaries and, and understanding your own personal limitations. So that's just a, a bit of an aside. But going back to sort of what we're talking about is the work of a prophet. When, when Moses and when Jesus and when Paul, when, when the people talk about the role of a prophet, it's to remind us of our responsibility towards one another. The role of a prophet is to, to speak to people and to say, we owe each other compassion. We owe each other love. We owe each other grace and kindness and peace. So the question becomes, are, are these the kinds of voices that we're hearing? Are, are, is this the kind of story that we're participating in? Or are we participating in a story that is in some way bringing some sort of unreality into this world? What voices have we been listening to? What story am I embodying? What story am I inviting other people to participating in? Because if, if we are carriers of this name, of the name of Jesus then we have to use this name for reality and not for unreality. And what does that look like? It looks like love your neighbor as yourself. Never lose your grip on the humanity of others. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, this invitation to, to love and to participate in a larger story. May we find that we are looking for the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control when we determine who it is that we're going to hear and participate with in this world. May we become discerning. May we hear these words. And may we, may we plant fruit. May we plant seeds that, that, that produce fruit of the, the things that you are trying to bring into the world. May we participate in a better kind of story. May we resist Lashav. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.